Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this daily science fiction extravaganza, commonly known as Tales, Tales from Outer from space. Out, space. space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider supporting the channel. On to the science fiction. Story number one. One Last Stand. Written by Darren Hedala. The funeral dirge floated over the camp. Dozens of voices strong, and General Miller reflected that yes, he was definitely starting to hate the sound. It was not a dirge that had existed before the previous campaign because it was assembled from snatches of traditional funeral songs of a dozen nations, forced together into a single army by circumstance. It was a song sang heartfelt through tears at the beginning of the campaign, a few times after every battle. Those killed in battle would be sung for first, and then, over the next few days, those who died of their wounds would join them, and more dirges would be sung. It was a song sung with increased frequency as the medicine and clean water and the healing magic started to run out. The Ashkan learned to target human healers and supply scouts until any wound deeper than a skin became a potential fatality. It was a song sung barely at all as the human forces had been forced into panic retreat, as there had been barely time for burials and then no time for even that. As people had stopped caring, the army was merely a guard to slow the relentless Ashkaan long enough to allow the remaining non-combatants to evacuate ahead of them, and death became meaningless, a mere shaving of more seconds the clock of humanity's remaining time. It wouldn't have been worth fighting at all if there had been anything else to do. And now, here humanity was, with everyone capable of lifting a weapon and drafted into the ragtag handful of regiments protecting the last pass of the last valley, and everyone incapable of holding a weapon huddling in that valley, collecting water and making bandages that everyone knew would be no chance to use. Here, humanity was preparing for one last defense against the Ashkaan force so focused on wiping them out. Here, for the last stand of the last pass to the last valley, death had suddenly become very important again, and the dirge, weakened though it was by low numbers left to sing it, was full of grief and love and pain, as it had been the first days of the war. General Muller wished that there was a polite way to shut the mourners up. Sir, Muller turned at the voice, a smile already on his lips. High Archer Muller was as beautiful as the day he'd married her forty years ago, even with the messy scars marring one side of her face and filthy remains of what had once counted as clothes, practically falling off her skeletal frame. If it hadn't been for their son in the army beside them, their daughter, having died six months ago, sacrificing herself as a focal point to call lightning down upon the contingent of Ashkaan cavalry, and the grandchildren down in the valley, 
the pair would have quit the army and spent their twilight days enjoying each other and the world around them, until the enemy came for them, but that wasn't an option. Even with no hope whatsoever, with those people counting on them, they had no choice but to throw their remaining time into the miserable, terror-filled drudgery of war. There hadn't even been a discussion. The salute she gave him was an irrelevant flattering of fingers, as full of humor as the honorific title. She was pretending good spirit for him. He'd have to pretend too, for her. So he held a smile on his lips. Hi, Archer, he asked. There's an Ashquan captive ready to talk. Them? I don't have... It's a general, Henry. This got his attention. It wasn't usually difficult to get an Ashquan captive to talk. Not if you had someone violently persuasive enough on hand and gave them a quick course on how to keep prisoners alive long enough to actually say something, and almost all the humans had lost their squirmishness and good ethics over torture several relentless genocidal Ashkoan hordes ago. The problem was that even talkative captives tended to be quite useless. Ashkoan were highly specialized. A songmate could detail their singing practices under the knife. Useless information, as no human was capable of their magic, and no Ashkoan had ever defected to perform it for them, but could give no information whatsoever on what other military units were doing, where supply lines were, who the military decision makers were apart from their direct superiors, or where the army was going next. A common soldier could explain in detail the effectiveness and abilities of his specific micro-unit, but since that unit was already dead or captured by that point, it didn't help much. He couldn't give any information on what the other units were doing, or why. At most, information on a new military technique or a bit of technology could be worked out. Sometimes, if they were lucky enough to get a broad enough array of captors, their information could be put together and vague overall plans could be guessed at. But it was usually more trouble than it was worth. But a general, somebody who actually made the decisions, who had a broader view than the handfuls of Ashkoan soldiers who had come through the interrogation tents, this might be worth something. Nothing the general knew would save humanity, of course, but it might help make humanity's blood price a little bit higher. General Miller marched into the interrogation tent. There, tied to a single chair in the middle, was an Ashkoan, the bright tattoos covering his near-white skin and cut of his shaggy black hair depicting his rank. He glared at Miller. You'd think it would be hard to tell exactly what a being with completely blood-red eyes with no discernible pupils was glaring at. But on this general, there was no doubt. He was tied securely to the chair by his wrists, forearms, calves, and thighs, but sat in it like a throne, his regal posture betrayed only by his obvious pain. This pain was probably due to the two arrow shafts sticking out of his belly, although the other battlefield cuts and bruises probably contributed too. His fingers were caked in dry blood, a few of his long, notoriously tough Ashkoan fingernails broken. Apparently, he put up quite a bit of a fight even after being shot down. Now, he put up none. Miller hesitated in the doorway of the tent. Something was strange about this. 
It took him a moment to realize. As injured as the young general was, his wounds were clearly the wounds of battle. He had none of the distinctive wounds left by the trained interrogator. Hell, he was still wearing a full Ashkohan general's regalia, torn and bloodstained as it was. Even his embroidered cloak was in place, perfectly level on his shoulders. He looked all the world as if he surrendered, allowed himself to be tied up to the chair, and immediately declared his intent to cooperate without his interrogator having to put a mark on him. Why? If he wanted a quicker death, he could have killed himself on the battlefield. Both of the arrows in him required a short, sharp movement to be fatal. Miller glanced at the interrogator, waiting in the corner. She shrugged. It looked like a trap, but it didn't feel like a trap. Years on the battlefield had taught Miller that when head and heart agree on something, doing it immediately would probably save your life. When they disagree, whatever you do is a gamble. Ah, freck it, we die in the morning anyway. He strode forward until he was just out of the zone that would have been the general's arm's length, had he not been tied to a chair. I am General Miller, he said, and you are? General Kashan, the Ashkwan general spat, not out of rudeness, but to dispose of a mouthful of blood. He coughed weakly and winced. You don't appear to be fighting as much as the soldiers, Miller said, scanning Kashan's tattoos until he found the general's name written in Ashkwan on his right cheek. Their tattoos weren't fresh, so the general was probably an actual general with that name. Why this then? Where was the trap? In answer to his remark, Cashin flexed his blood-covered fingernails. So you're just gonna answer my questions? I don't see why not. Why? Miller asked bluntly, wincing at his own lack of professionalism. I won't get out of here alive anyway, and you're all dying tomorrow, Cashin said, mouth spreading into a wide grin that bared his long, triangular teeth. The time for clever diplomacy is over, Miller. All never happened. You never stood a chance. Perhaps not. So this one was chatty then. Miller clamped down the urge to ask questions and merely crossed his arms and waited. We could have taken you down weeks ago, you know. We could have raced ahead and blocked the mouth of the valley that you've all got garrisoned up, crushed you in between our forces, killed every last human with one strike. Cashin was waiting for a response. Miller gave him one. Why didn't you? She wasn't ready yet. Seemed such a pity to put so much work into her and not give her a spin. We thought we'd save you for her. A quick treat before we turned our attention to conquering the rest of the surface world and go up against some races who might actually put up a fight. Not that you'll be much of a snack. How many humans are left? Two thousand? Less? Muller kept his face impassive. Cashin would have been scanned for magical bugs before Muller had been called. But there were always the chance that the Ashkohan had developed something new and sneaky that the human mages couldn't detect. It wouldn't make a difference how much the Ashkwan knew now, but there were still the principles of military secrecy to uphold. Who is she? Miller asked. The most masterful feat of magical engineering ever created. Cashin somehow grinned even wider. I want you to know about it before you die, General Miller. You can't do a damn thing. 
So you may as well know what's coming, right? You should know that here, in the last moment, you're going to make the Ashkwan even stronger. What little pathetic strength you have will let us conquer the other races all the more easily. If you really are as interested in harmony with the other races as you believe, the best thing you could do for them is just for every human still alive to commit suicide right now, before she can come and get them. You haven't answered my question, Miller said neutrally. Oh, you want more? Fine. She is a devourer, the memory eater. I'm sure you've noticed over the past few months how our most powerful mages, our strongest warriors, have been withdrawing from the battlefield. How the forces we sent after you so slightly weakened. Perhaps you didn't notice. To a pug, a child's shoe as heavy as a grown man's. Right? It took all of Miller's resolve to look unaffected. They had noticed. They thought that the strategies to identify and target the strongest enemies had been working. That even if they couldn't weaken their enemy fast enough to save their own kind, they'd at least leave them weaker for the rest of the world to fight. Was Cashin implying otherwise? Had their efforts accomplished nothing? A trap. It had to be a trap. Find the trap. We've been feeding her, Cashin said quietly, like a child sharing a secret. All the best magic users, strategists, even medics and generals, and logistics officers, your people have sneered at our levels of specialization before. But together, we are unbelievably strong. She is equivalent to all the best of everything in our army. And tomorrow, she will add what pathetic insights your kind bring to the battlefield, to her own. He rippled his shoulders in a movement that would probably have been a shrug if it hadn't been so securely tied. If she chooses to keep any of those memories, I mean, it's unlikely that any of you know anything worth keeping. But we thought it only polite to give her the opportunity. Anything else you want to share? Miller asked, trying to keep his voice toneless. No, I just wanted to see the expression on your face when you heard about it. You can go ahead and kill me now. Cashin dubbed his head back, baring his throat. Don't kill him, Miller said to the interrogator. Cut off the shafts of the arrows and move his chair to an underground cell where the enemy won't find him after the battle. Make sure that he's tied so he can't kill himself. We might need more information for the fight. And after the fight? She asked, confused. Miller shrugged. Who cares? Those wounds will slowly kill him. Or dehydration will. It is not our problem. Miller stayed long enough to imprint the look of horror on Cashin's face in his mind. Ashquan can survive a surprisingly long time without water. And then strode quickly out of the tent, ignoring the prisoner's shouts of protest. He hadn't been a cruel man this time two years ago. He wouldn't have delighted in doing that to a helpless prisoner a couple dozen battles ago. This war, he decided, had found more than one way to destroy humanity. Well, sir, High Archer Bella asked, jogging over. The general gave her a smile and tried to summon some tenderness or humor or hope or anything positive, really, to put into it. He didn't think he did very well. Get together all the high leaders you can, he told her. 
I have some bad news. All the normal protests took place. It's a trap. It's a trick. The Ashkoan are actually just feigning strength. Somehow, we have magically gained the upper hand. And now, they're trying to drive us to suicide. We owe it to the world not to fight such a being. We owe it to the world to fight to the last soldier. We owe it to humanity to fight the last stand. We owe it to humanity to go to the valley and spend what time we have together. Enjoy. If Cashin had planned to split the human forces, he had been successful. A little rumor like that about the super weapon should have done very little, but the humans were already so fractured, so defeated, that it was simply too much. General Miller observed, detached, how human soldiers who would have been fighting against the death a few years ago stood side by side with him to make a plan of attack, while his own family fractured in the face of hopelessness. Miller's son elected to cast down his sword and spend his remaining time in the valley with his children and his sister's children, one last happy day before the end. He took enough weapons and armor to make the last stand when the Ashkoan came for the children, and enough poison to make sure that those children would not feel pain when they did. And Miller's wife. I'm sorry, the high archer told him, tears in her eyes, one hand cupped to the side of his scarred face. It's not going to work. I have to... I have to defend our family, our people, even if it's hopeless. I... I am the one who should be sorry, Lem, he replied. We should be dying in battle together, side by side, as it was always meant to be. I know I'm betraying you in this way, but... uh, But a chance for humanity, any chance, is worth more than us. It won't work. Neither will arrows and swords. We can weaken them, fight, go down with honor, make it a little harder for them to conquer everyone else, make them remember us. Your plan, uh, I love you, you know that, but you're just gonna make things harder for the rest of the world. You don't believe in humanity anymore, do you? Her eyes hardened. There is not a lack of belief in humanity. That's the issue here. You really won't come to the front line with me. He shook his head. I have to try. You won't stay here with me. No, I have to try too. And the thought of that thing, of it eating my... She shuddered. He nodded. If you must die, my love, you deserve it to be clean and glorious. Go, be humanity's last cry in the darkness. Lead them with integrity and grace and skill and uh, be human to the last. He pulled her closer. Their kiss took as much time as they did spare. Then the high archer Miller mounted her horse and was given the command to ride out. The horn blew and the last human army, every soldier in the best armor and carrying the best weapons than humanity still owned, rode out. Majors resplendent in the least tattered robes, standard bearers bearing their least faded flags, every wound dressed and rationed bandages and beddies full of the last of the army's food stalls used in the big glorious feast of humanity's last night. 
Miller watched the army ride out, one last bit in the face of fate, and only when they were out of sight did he turn to the pass that led to the valley where the non-combatants and deserters waited. He didn't blame those deserters. How could he? They were more human still than he was. It was the last day, and they were with their families and friends in the sunshine. And here he was, in a mountain pass, imagining the faces of the family that he should be with, imagining the things that he should be saying and doing, trying not to think about the captive that he'd had sealed away to die slowly, in pain, one petty act of sadism in a long line of them that might seem perfectly justified by circumstances. But Miller didn't want his humanity to be so weak that it could be destroyed by a mere circumstance. The camp around him was more than a wreck. It was practically non-existent. The garrison had never been finished, and now everything they owned was either with the army heading out to face the Ashcan, or in the valley to feed and supply the remaining humans. The quarter, also of the army that had decided to stay with him, looked lost, wandering in spaces between campfires and the few tents that nobody had bothered to pack up. A couple of the people still had knives, too blunt to be of any real use to the army or the valley, and had found things to whittle. Somebody was feeding the fire and setting the cauldron to make a bittersweet tea from the last dregs of their final forage and their reserves of salty pond water. Even the most tea-addicted soldier could not possibly want to drink such a thing. Miller figured that they were just looking for something to do. It only took about five minutes before the stories and songs started up. The soldiers in the half-complete garrison might have said tearful goodbyes to most of their loved ones, but they still had some left. Brothers and sisters of the sword, soldiers who had fought side by side for the last year or two, who had also decided to stay. Soldiers wandering between groups, they sat with people from their homelands to talk about the good old days, and with foreign friends to take comfort in the bonds formed in the latest war and with complete strangers, swapping stories with speed and enthusiasm and no reserve, saving nothing for the non-existent tomorrow. Declarations of love and deep friendship and hatred were made on the spot and were reciprocated or rejected or rescinded with a laugh. Some first fights broke out, which nobody tried to stop. Some couples and small groups snuck off to the remaining tents or shadowy corners to indulge in each other's bodies for either the first or last time. Miller kissed three of his friends in the manner of a lover and broke an old rival's nose, who responded by biting part of Miller's ear off. Even if there had been a bandage left in the camp to dress the wound, nobody would have bothered. Somewhere down the mountain, far too far away to hear the clangs and roars and screams of battle. They could hear the dull roar of inconceivably massive acts of magic. They could see unnatural storm clouds gathering and lightning striking again and again. They could see the sky light up red and blue with the lights of the Ashcan song magic, more powerful than any they'd ever seen. 
as one, the camp stopped and watched silently until the magic stopped. It didn't take very long. Soon, the only signs of battle visible from the camp was the now quiet storm clouds moving steadily towards their positions. Somewhere in the mass of soldiers, the funeral dirge started. A few voices at first, establishing the rhythm. Then, their neighbors joined them. Soon, the entire camp was singing the litany built of lines from dozens of dirges in as many languages, patched together and smoothed by time and repetition. After so many battles together, all haphazard rhythm and nonsensical sentence fragments, a purity of the deep, common feeling. General Miller sang with grief, grief for his daughter and his now deceased wife and his brothers and sisters in arms who had fallen to the enemy. Grief for the human civilization. He didn't know who'd fallen in the initial Ashcan surprise attacks before anybody knew there was even a war. Grief for everyone who had fallen and everyone who had watched somebody fall. For the soldiers beside him. For himself. For his son and his grandchildren and the last of humanity. If they couldn't stop the onslaught. They sang until their voices started to fail, the storm clouds creeping closer. And then she appeared. Mala had been expecting a super-powered mage at the head of a huge Ashkan army. There was no army. There was only her. And she was enough. She may once have been an Ashkan mage, but her power had long burned away anything material about her. Now she was a form sculptor of lightning and wind and fire and earth striding forward, occasionally jumping a few feet in the lightning strike, a cloak of fire pouring down her back, two pins of blinding blue light served as a rise in body of air and dust. She had abandoned the concept of the Ashcan height. Instead of standing a head or so shorter than the human she faced, she was six or seven times their size. Mela had once faced an Ashcan song mage who could command two spells instead of the usual one, wind and fire. He had been the most accomplished mage in their ranks and cost the human forces more than any single battle reasonably should. This thing seemed to be made out of every song spell ever invented. The air around her hummed, literally, with a dozen discordant tunes. The voices of the unarmed soldiers began to falter, some turning to flee in panic, others raising their voices louder, stronger, carrying on the dirge, trying to drown out the crackle of lightning and the drone of song magic. Hands grasping for hands. Some eyes closed, others stayed wide open as the soldiers formed lines to block the mountain pass to the valley with their own bodies. The rhythm of the dirge picked up and settled once more. Realistically, she could probably have simply leapt over the soldiers if she wanted or climbed the mountain around them as if it were nothing. But they were not an obstacle. They were prey. Arms of dust and air were raised. The cloak of fire flared. Lighty struck her right in the top of the head and then crawled out along the ground to lap at the feet of the soldiers. 
Every soldier touched by the lightning dropped dead instantly, falling in place, the living gripping tightly to the hands of their companions to stop both themselves and the others from fleeing. They sang louder, but over the span of mere seconds, the voices were silenced until only the drone of song magic remained. And she continued down the path. Roger Miller, shingle maker by trade, until the war had claimed every able-bodied adult, lay his sleeping daughter down in bed and gently kissed her forehead. His wife had chosen to make the final stand with his father, and Roger hadn't wanted to mar the final moments by fighting about it. He couldn't blame her, really, not with what he had to do now. He had four children, and his deceased sister had three Seven little kids, most of them too young to fight, and the pair of eight-year-olds too injured, now lay sleeping on and around the makeshift bed in this tent, and in his hand was a little bottle of clear poison that would spare them the Ashcan's amusements. One drop on the lip of each, but not until he was sure, not until he was absolutely damn sure that there would be no divine intervention. No last-minute miracle, no sudden burst of impossible rescue. Not until the army was physically pouring down the entrance to the pass, forcing open the flimsy makeshift gates. He owed them that much. He owed them a little bit of desperate hope. The valley was somewhat of a wreck. Everything edible had been scavenged days ago. The small creek muddied with overuse. Humanity wouldn't live long enough to be worth building a well or planting gardens, or even building real houses. Outside the tent, across from his, Leanna sat on a rock, watching the pass entrance. She had in her hands a cup of filthy water taken from the creek, and she sipped it as he watched. Seconds later, she slumped sideways onto the ground and began to snore. The poison would take hours to get her. It's that Ashcan didn't do so first, but there was nothing short of magic that would wake her now and allow her to feel it. Liana had been very old and missing a leg. There was no way that she could have made any kind of last stand. Around him, others were making the same decision for themselves or their children, some drinking immediately, others waiting, like him, until no shred of hope remained. The hastily constructed path skate exploded in shrapnel. Roger leapt to his feet, drawing his sword, but uh, there was no way that a sword could have done anything to a thing that came through. Taller than the gates itself, built of air and earth and fire and lightning, it moved through the world like a child between sandcastles, leaving no doubt as to what would happen to anything in its way. There was no army behind it. Perhaps, Roger reflected, the poison wouldn't be necessary after all. However this thing chose to attack, he had no doubt that it would be quick. The monster spread its arms and flared its fiery cape out like a set of giant wings, a soft light dripped from its hands like water, pouring onto the ground and flowing out over the valley. Roger jumped onto a rock to avoid it, but it crept up the rock too, a soft light that suffused the entire valley floor. Liana sat up groaning. She blinked, looking confused. 
From the tents around them came weary, bewildered exclamations. The light faded into the ground, and the being strode forward. Everyone scrambled out of her way as she made her way to the stream. She moved into it. The sluggish, muddy water rippled around the place where her feet should have been, and began to rise until it was fuller than when they had arrived. Where her fiery cloak hit the water, it steamed and water flowed beyond the road clear. She swept her hands dismissively around the valley, and the air bunched around the over-harvested trees, forming branches and new fruit. With that, she turned and walked back towards the mouth of the pass. A gesture drew sheets of rock from the mountainside to pull the solid wall of most of the pass, and the being shrank herself enough to fit through the remaining doorway, stooped to pick up a flimsy wooden barricade that the humans had made and fitted it into place behind her. They did it, Roger, breathed into the world at large. They turned that weapon. That old bastard's plan actually worked. In his prison, General Cushion could hear very little, but he heard enough. He heard the drone of some kind of human singing above him, then the discordant sounds of clashing song magic, and then silence, and he smiled. It would take a while for him to die, and his body either ran out of resources or succumbed to the infection of his wounds. But it didn't matter. They had won. Since his vocation had been chosen for him as a young child, this had been his goal. He would be amongst the first set of generals to strike a blow against the surface world. It was a grand honor, really to be here for the defeat of the first surface world race. And really, his death down here was an added bonus. Nobody would know that the humans had captured him. Nobody would find his body. He was one of many who disappeared on the battlefield, and as befitted his rank and the rank of his house, it would be assumed that he had died heroically in battle. Now, it was just a matter of time... Slow and painful time, but there was no reason not to look at the bright side of things. After all, they had won. He had been enjoying this thought when the door to his cell crumbled to dust. It had been dark in his cell, but she brought her own light with her. In thunder and lightning, she was smaller than he was used to seeing her, having shrunk herself to fit through the human-sized doorway. Her fire and lightning were more subdued. She strode towards him, raising her hand, and agony rippled through his body as the arrowheads lodged in his body were drawn out. This was replaced immediately by a new agony. A full-body-burning itch. His numerous wounds were cleaned and closed, leaving fresh scars under the dried blood and pus. She made a dismissive gesture, and the ropes binding him to his chair collapsed into piles of disconnected fibers. Cashin stood up, uncertain. What did she want from him? He had succeeded, and he doubted that he was important enough to be worth her time to rescue. What was going on. She strode forward, and as she came closer, he noticed two things. The first was the reason for her more subdued fire. Over her fiery cloak lay an actual cloth one, scrounged from tattered cloth. He recognized the design immediately. 
It was the flag of the United Human Forces. The other thing that he noticed was the bundle of singed cloth in her hand, a rumpled, burnt ashcan flag. The actual house designation burned away so that it could represent any house of the ashcan, or perhaps all of them. She dropped it at his feet. Return to your forces, she hissed in a voice that seemed to ring not from the figure in front of him, but from the stone walls around him. Tell them that the Spaddy and the humans within are now under the protection of the army of the dead. They are under the protection of their... Her sentence became nonsensical as several words were whispered from the walls at once. Mother... Father, sister, brother, son, daughter, friend, partner, lover, rival, knight, leader. Then the whispers clipped together again, her speech becoming clear once more. The Ashcan soldiers have one week to return underground. After that time, any Ashcan soldier in these mountains will be killed without warning or hesitation. Any Ashcan soldier that I am able to find anywhere in the world above ground will be killed without warning or hesitation. If you wish to deal with the above ground races, you will send an unarmed traders and diplomats and hire above ground races to protect you. Any Ashcan to perpetuate violence on anybody above ground will be killed without warning or hesitation. This is the message that you will carry to your people. This is the only warning that I will give you. Cashin blinked at her. The humans, he said finally. They're alive. They are. How many? Enough. With time and protection and assistance, they will thrive within a few short generations. But we... Why? How? Why did you betray us? Your own people. Your own duty. She laughed, and for a moment she sounded more like a person than a terrifying magical experiment. You mocked them for their generalization of purpose and the lack of purity. You called them weak. What did you expect to happen when you fed them to me, young general? You were so careful to feed me the most dedicated majors, the most focused tacticians, the most loyal soldiers. We were making you the perfect warrior. The pride of our military. Then be grateful that you failed. Whose memories do you think prevent me from simply opening the ground and slaughtering your traders and caretakers and children without warning to eliminate the threat that your species poses to the world? It is no memory from the cloistered mage, no soldier trained for ruthless butchery. Who do you think drives me to speak to you now, to explain, rather than simply disintegrate your body from the inside out? Take my message to your forces. It is the last shred of pity that I will grant you. Cashin picked up the charred, grubby Ashcan flag and hurried for the door. General Cashin, she called after him, causing him to freeze in the doorway. Henry regretted not giving you a merciful death when you were no longer useful. He felt that he was being cruel. If he were alive today, I'm sure that he would want to apologize to you. Cashin didn't respond. He rushed outside and practically sprinted down the mountain. And behind him, the very earth, the camp and the pass and the sun-drenched valley seemed to sing.
End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode. And I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.